Amen. Amen. That's great. It's lovely to be with you all. Great to see so many here, even on a bank holiday weekend. Uh, thank you to all those involved with the worship and uh, the tech and everything. I want to thank uh, John and Fiona as well. They put me up last night just to make the journey a lot easier. It's just been lovely to see Seth and uh, Isla as well. Um, if you don't mind, can I just pray again now? I, I'm sorry, I, I just had a phone message uh, and in the church that I'm attending, there's a, a sort of emergency prayer line. And it, sorry, it's just disturbing me a little. There's a little girl who has got leukemia and she is desperately ill right now. Her granny who comes to the church is a Christian, but the parents of the little girl aren't. And uh, she's make, I, I, I please forgive me, I can't even remember which hospital she's in. It, she's in one of those specialist hospitals. So if you just join with me, Sophia is the name of the little girl. Our God and Father, we humbly come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the great physician. We thank you that uh, time and distance and... Uh, details they're no problem to you and I would just ask you and we would unite together to pray for little Sophia and pray that right at this moment you will touch her and that little life will be saved and all the potential that is in that life will come to serve you and do great things and love and adore you thank you Lord Jesus thank you God our Father thank you Holy Spirit amen amen, amen. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I know that's a little bit uh, unusual. It was just uh, quite, uh, you know, concerned me. Uh, the last few weeks, uh, well, the last few months, I've had the privilege of speaking here, and uh, I've spoken from some passages in John, and I'd like to turn to John again, and if you do have your Bibles or you've got a Bible on your uh, phone, uh, if you could turn to John chapter 6, and I'm just going to read the first 15 verses of that. Uh, last time I was with you, I was actually talking about uh, the, the incredible miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I said that was a unique miracle. It's only in the Gospel of John that we read about uh, this miracle. But today we're going to talk about something else that is unique, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And you might say, why is that unique? Is it only John that mentions it? No. It's the only miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. Out of all the miracles Jesus did, it's the only one. And so we've got four accounts. And it's sometimes very helpful because you can compare the different accounts and uh, the different perspectives that God has given to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. But I'm just going to focus uh, just now on the reading from John's Gospel, chapter 6. So it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy food for these people to eat? He asked this, only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy 
with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people all sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. Okay, so we've got this uh, story. Uh, John includes some details that we don't find in the other accounts, and the other accounts all sort of uh, pad this out and fill out the story. And possibly for many people here, you'll have heard this story many times. Uh, let me just go through this passage. It's talking about some time after this, and in Luke's gospel in particular, they fill in quite a bit of the background. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the 12 disciples had just gone on their first sort of mission, if you like. Jesus had said, I want you to go out. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast demons out of people. I want you to preach about the kingdom of God. But one of the interesting things is, is that when um, Jesus told them to do this in Mark, he said, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. In actual fact, during this mission, you're going to have to rely on God. You're going to have to rely on God to send provisions for you. And sometimes he's going to use other people and they're going to show great hospitality. So the disciples had just come back their first successful uh, mission. We also find out that uh, Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist. Some of you will know that Herod, he'd made a promise to this exotic dancer, and uh, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And Jesus was incredibly close. He was a great friend. In fact, he was more than a friend. He was actually related uh, to Jesus. And God had chosen John to go before Jesus to prepare the way for him. And all of a sudden, Jesus hears about this death. And uh, I'm sure that filled him with sadness, not only for John, but perhaps it brought extra focus to his own mission, because he knew that his mission was to come into this world to die. And again, in, back in Luke's gospel, when uh, John has, has died, people start talking about Jesus. And uh, some of the people are saying, John, uh, Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. And Herod starts to ask questions, who is this man? And interestingly, both just before this miracle of feeding the 5,000, and also after it in Luke's gospel, Jesus again asks that same question. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter has this great revelation, and Peter says, well, some of the other people, they think you might be John the Baptist, come back to life, or Elijah, or another one of the prophets. But uh, he receives this revelation from God, and he says, you are the Christ you're the son, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one. And, um, and another interesting thing that happens then is that Jesus then starts talking about his death. And Peter's a, a bit taken aback by this because he thinks this de declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, 
he's not expecting the son of the living God to come and to die. But again, that is part of his mission. So that's a little bit about uh, the background. I'll pick one or two of those points up again. Um, what we find uh, is that... I, I, another thing I'd just like to say is that this miracle, it's to do with food. And it actually does strike me as quite interesting that when you look at a number of the miracles, the very first miracle that Jesus does in uh, the Gospel of John is uh, he provides water. Do you remember they run out of water at the wedding feast? And Jesus provides, I was going to say bucket loads, but you know, there's great stone jars full of wine. When Jesus is telling stories, telling his parables, he often talks about food. He talks about the sower going out and casting the seed. He talks about wheat growing up. He talks about vineyards. He talks about banquets. Uh, in fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke as well, Jesus either seems to be on his way to a party at a party or on his way home from a party. Uh, he just seems to be constantly eating. And, and some of John, John the Baptist's disciples had a problem with this and said, why aren't you fasting? And some of Jesus' enemies say, it's a, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. And yet, of course, actually meals are so important. You'll know, obviously, from what's uh, left on your chair that uh, after I, I finish talking, we're actually going to have a little sort of meal together. But right at the heart of our Christian faith is this great celebration of the Last Supper, where we do this in remembrance. We take bread and we take wine, and it reminds us of what God does. I also want to suggest that actually having meals together is a great way of sharing with other Christians and with non-Christians as well. It's great to, you know, especially coming out of lockdown, uh, great to have the opportunity again to meet with people. And sometimes you find that over a meal, as you're talking, you can share the good stuff. You can share the bad stuff as well. And sometimes you can think creatively about what can we do in this situation? How can we get through this? And I want to encourage you to start thinking about sharing meals. And I also say from a very practical way, because for some people, it's going to be hard. Heating or eating is going to be really, really difficult. And um, one of the things about this great miracle that happens is Jesus also teaches and Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life and of course this is vitally important there's a spiritual message but there's also a very practical message these people are hungry and Jesus says we've got to do something about it actually in fact in actual fact when he reads Mark's gospel he says you've got to do something about it because once they point the problem out to Jesus Jesus just says give them something to eat and that leads to a little bit of a debate, uh, and we'll come to that just in a minute. Jesus, John says, is by the Sea of Galilee, and John also points out that this is called the Sea of Tiberias. You might be thinking, who's Tiberius? Well, Tiberius was actually the Roman emperor at the time. King Herod found in him a sort of patron, a supporter, and uh, he wanted to do something for Tiberius. So around about five, ten years before, they'd started building this city on the uh, western side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they built this city called Tiberius. And they started calling the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberius, the Sea of the Roman Emperor. Now, can I just say, all the Jews were quite nationalistic, but particularly up there in the north, and you can imagine their indignation, these people who felt oppressed, oppressed by the Romans, who wanted to throw off the Roman yoke of occupation, 
all of a sudden they find that their lake, you know, which was the livelihood for many of the people up there, suddenly it's being called the Sea of Tiberias. And uh, John also mentions that this is near the time of the Feast of the Passover. Now, if you recall in the Old Testament, the Passover was the time when God intervened in uh, Israel's history. The Passover lamb was slain, but they were released from slavery. They were released from the Egyptians. It spoke about God's deliverance. So you can imagine at this time, there's a lot of nationalistic feeling going on, people remembering that in the past they'd been independent, remembering in the past that God had intervened, um, and uh, you know, also feeling quite aggrieved towards the Romans. Now, Jesus had gone across the lake. Um, Mark tells us that he, he got in a boat to get across the lake. And uh, there were a number of times when you read the Gospels, Jesus has a break, if you like. Jesus needs some time apart. In fact, he said to his disciples, uh, come apart and rest a while. And sometimes we need to do that. Someone said, if you don't come apart and rest a while, you just come apart. And even for Jesus, there were times where he felt, I need a break. We need to look after ourselves and not burn, uh, burn out. You know, sometimes we say these things, oh yeah, I'm going to burn out for Jesus. Well, I remember reading about a very famous preacher from about the 1800 who died when he was 35. And he said, I've wasted this. He said, I, shouldn't, I should have lasted longer. Uh, if I'd been more sensible, I could have done more. So sometimes Jesus needed a break. Sometimes he's taking it for prayer. And again, so, so important. But Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. Does he need to pray? Well, that's what the Bible tells me. Even though he's got the spirit without measure, he needs this time in his father's presence. And very often he does it before times of ministry or times of confrontation. And uh, so there's a challenge to all of us. Uh, sometimes it is really preparation for being with people. Can I just say that? You know, Jesus is praying in order that when he makes social contact with other people, he will be able to do God's will. He will be able to share God's words. He will know God's power in that situation. And we need these two things to blend together. You know, there are some people, they're always praying, but they never ever talk to anyone, really. Uh, you know, it just seems such a shame. Other people, they make a lot of contact with other people, but there's no prayer. Let's hold the two of them together. And the other reason why Jesus sometimes took time apart is that he took it apart just to be with his disciples and just to spend time mentoring. And that's what was going on here. He'd gone across with his disciples. Now, this lake, the Lake of Galilee, even if it's widest, it's only about eight miles wide. And uh, probably in the area where they were, we're not exactly sure where they were, but it was probably quite a bit narrower. And actually, this meant that people very often could walk around part of the coast and get to the other side before a boat, I mean, it depended on which way the wind was, well, if there was any wind, because sometimes there was no wind and the boats uh, would struggle to get across, sometimes the wind would be blowing the wrong way. But it seems as though Jesus is headed off this way, and all the crowds thought, we want to see Jesus. And they're making this incredible effort to see him, they're sort of racing him around the lake, if you like. And one of the things that I find uh, interesting at first, this, this isn't too much of an effort. It seems as though they're not even bothered about having any sort of midday meal or stuff like that. I don't know if you've ever been engaged in something and uh, you've got so caught up that you say, oh, no, I, for I completely forgot to have my sandwiches this lunchtime because I was so caught up with this. And at this time, 
the people are focused on Jesus. And so they're coming around, and Jesus, he's got his disciples there, and then all of a sudden, he sees this crowd. And uh, it is interesting, Jesus' response. The Bible says he welcomed them. You know, I, I wonder if we are always like that. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, the phone rings or someone knocks at the door and uh, you think, oh, what's, what's going on here? But Jesus, he is full of welcome. In actual fact, uh, in, uh, I think it's in Luke's gospel, it says he's full of compassion towards them. Uh, that, that word compassion, uh, excuse the expression, the, the, the Greek really means gut-wrenching. Uh, if you read the authorized version, there's a bit in the Bible where it says, put on bowels of mercy, which seems a very odd expression. Uh, when the NIV translates, it says, clothe yourself with compassion. But Jesus sees these people, and he is so moved because of the situation that they're going through. And uh, actually, that verse, that it goes on and it says, uh, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus. Jesus later is going to teach about himself being the good shepherd. Uh, and maybe we, you know, we know, probably heard lots of sermons about shepherds. Shepherds who lead, shepherds who protect, shepherds who provide. Um, and of course, this fits in very nicely. Some of us will know Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. These people who are getting hungry. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We'll see how that flows out. But of course, Jesus goes on and says there's something else about being the good shepherd. The good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. So all these people come together and uh, Jesus uh, speaks to them and ministers to them. And then time is getting late and the crowd are getting hungry. They're probably quite tired after their journeys. And uh, we see how the disciples begin to react. Um, Back in Mark's gospel, this is what it says. It says, by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. Can I just say, the, the authorized version says it's a desert place. It really should say it's a deserted place. Um, there was grass there. It's green grass. There were possibly springs around there. Um, if any of you have been to uh, Israel uh, you might go, there's a place that we think that this uh, miracle took place and now there's uh, a building on it with a fine mosaic of uh, the loaves and the fishes, uh, a place called Heptag uh, Heptagagon. Uh, and uh, there's all these springs nearby. So it's not a desert place, but it is an isolated place. So said, this is a remote place. They said it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus said, you give them something to eat, which is very interesting. It's very interesting as well to see how people look at what the disciples say. And sometimes I, I, I think people are a bit negative, or certainly when it comes to uh, Philip. Some people, they seem to contrast Philip as being this man lacking faith. Philip just says, it's going to cost eight months of someone's wages for us. You know, it, it can't be done. And then other people say, well, there's good old Andrew, Andrew who had brought Jesus, uh, Peter to Jesus. Now he finds this little boy with a few fish and some bread, and he brings him to Jesus. And he's full of faith. Or is he? Because if you read it carefully, even Andrew says, here's a lad with some fish, with some bread, but what is that amongst so many? And to be quite honest, I think, I don't think the disciples are 
faithless. I don't think they're, they're, they're um, being nasty in any sort of way. I think, just think they're being honest. They're saying here's a huge crowd. How are we supposed to feed them? Oh, we might have something, but actually the resources that we've got are so limited. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have found myself in that situation loads of times. Where you look around, and again, if you don't mind me saying, the next year or two years for Britain are going to be so, so hard for so, so many people who are looking at the bills coming in and thinking, what do I do? I've got children to feed. I can't do it. I can't afford to run the shower. I can't afford to run the cooker. And, um, and, but the problem is, you see, sometimes we look at this and we think, well, what can I do? What can I do in the face of all these multinational companies that are making billions of pounds of profit while other people are starving? What can I do in the face of the Ukraine? What can we do in the face of COVID? And yet there is this challenge that actually we have got a God who can intervene in the situation. And we've got a God who can intervene in the situation with the little that we have if we are prepared to give it. You see, I think very often we almost become immobile because we think, well, I haven't got the answer. You know, I haven't got loads and loads of money. But actually, what have we got? I would like to encourage you, you know, as a church, a church leadership, in your discipleship groups, in your family groups, what can we do to help other people? I know of some churches, um, and they're getting together in groups of six or seven, and uh, some of them, they're saying, right, what we're going to do, we'll take it in turns, we will hold... We will open our church up one day a week. We will put the heating on so people can come in and be warm. And we will do our best to give them at least some sort of meal. And sometimes, as I say, it's just being creative, trying to think, okay, God, what can we do in this situation? It may be on a personal level. There are other people that we can, if we can afford that extra place at the dinner table, occasionally to call them around. Uh, Really, I mentioned at the beginning, you see, one of the things that's slightly strange about this is the disciples had just been told, go on this mission, don't take any money. You've got to trust in God. And they come back and God had done all these great things. I, th- I think one of the great, I don't know if it's an illness or disabilities that Christian ha- Christians have is spiritual amnesia. All right? In other words, we just forget uh, you know, and we, we sing these songs, count your blessings, you know, and sometimes it's easy, and we, we say, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and then sometimes in these moments of crisis, we forget what God has done. The Bible is full of uh, encouragements and exhortations to remember. Remember your creator in the days of youth. Remember the way that he has led you. Uh, remember the things that God has done for us. And sometimes it's good just to look back and think, uh, I mean, if, I hadn't planned on saying this, but I, I remember years ago, I was in a very small church. They couldn't afford to pay me anything. Lynn, we had just had our son, and um, Lynn had given up her job to look after our, our, our son. And uh, somehow we managed to get by, but Christmas was coming. And um, that was going to be awkward, because you can hide poverty from people, if you're, if you're clever, but Christmas was coming, and uh, I just said, what are we going to do? And when I was in bed, and Lynn, my wife, uh, 
read the verse, anything you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. Now, I think most of you know, I'm not one of these health, wealth, you know, name it, claim it, frame it sort of uh, people. Uh, but Lynn said, yeah, we're going to get it. I'm going to pray for 100 pound. And that was a colossal amount of money for us in those days. The next morning, we received a check. Don't know where it came from to this day for 100 pounds. And that was so amazing because I knew God did it for Billy Graham and Louis Palau and uh, probably Steve Kerry as well. Uh, you know, but all of a sudden, actually, God stepped in and God did it for me. And, uh, you know, there are some times when I forget that. And I find myself in a situation and you know, I just need to be reminded, yeah, God can step in and God can do those things. And so they are challenged. <laughs> I do like as well the fact that in one way, the answer doesn't come from these super apostles who've just been on their mission. The answer comes from this little boy who's this obviously poor boy with very meager rations. What has he got? He says, here's a boy with five small Emphasize that they're small. Barley loaves. I just say barley loaves were the poor person's loaf. The barley was a very coarse green. You know, nowadays you can go to the shops and you can get all these different bloomer loaves and tiger loaves and uh, seeded bread and stuff like that. Barley was what the poor people had to eat. So he's got five small loaves and he's got two small fishes. Uh, Actually, the Lake of Galilee was teeming with these small fishes. They were tiny, about the sort of size of sardines, if anyone remembers tins of sardines all crammed together. Um, and they were known throughout the Roman Empire because people, they would be uh, caught, and then obviously they didn't have freezers in those days, and you had to do something with the fish because it would go off very quickly. So they would pickle them, and then they would take them around. So he's got sort of two pickled sardines and uh, you know I've read some books and they suggested you know it's like a little garnish to help the bread go down okay so when you get home if you're doing the cooking little surprise pickled sardine on the top of the Sunday Sunday lunch or something like that um, but you know this isn't this is not great food it's not expensive uh, food but it's given to Jesus you know, and I, I look at this, and it doesn't even seem as though the boy says, well, can I keep one? You know, I wonder what I'd have done if I'd been, well, I, you know, I, I've got some, I'll have one piece of bread and a fish for myself, and you can have the rest. But it's all surrendered to Jesus. Uh, interestingly, Jesus says, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down. So what was happening? There was preparation for a miracle. See, I sometimes look in the Bible and I just see people doing things because they're expecting God to answer their prayers. Wow, that's an interesting idea. I'm going to pray and I'm going to expect it to happen. And you see, sometimes I hear other people say prayers and I think, well, what would you do if God answered that prayer? You know, I have been in meetings and people say, Lord, we want to see our church double. Send in the drug addicts and the prostitutes. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, if this time next week, you know, what, 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 what would you do? You know, people wouldn't really know what to do, so there's no preparation. I'll, I'll give you just one uh, example from the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, Elijah is on the top of the mountain, and he is about to pray for fire to come from heaven. 
But the first thing he does, he says, we need the altar. The altar has got to be built. The altar has got to be built according to God's specifications. So let's find out what God wants, and then we will build the altar. Then we can put the animal, the sacrifices on, on the altar. Now, Elijah couldn't send the fire down from heaven himself. He was reliant on God, and we are reliant on God's sovereign power to act. But we can get things ready. And again, I just want to ask you to start thinking, God, what do you want to do? Especially maybe when we look forward, look, you know, at what the next year or so might have. What, what do you, are there things that we can put in place that we can begin to prepare? It then said, um, the men sat down, about 5,000 of them, and of course there would be women and children there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated. Can I just say, it was only this morning, as I was reading over the passage again, I, I noticed it says, it's those who are seated who get the bread. Now, I don't know, I, I'm sure you've probably seen pictures, um, you know, in some famine uh, countries torn by famine where relief agencies bring bread or rice or supplies in and everyone... Can I just say, I remember the days when I used to have to shout, okay? So, uh, so um, I just found it interesting. It's those who were seated, those who had been obedient to what Jesus had said and showed a certain humility that they are the ones that are fed. And the Bible just says uh, they had as much as they wanted. Uh, the various expressions in the other gospel, they were all full. They couldn't eat any more. And again, I just think this talks about the extravagance of God. I was mentioning about the, the wine. Jesus changes gallons or liters. There was so much wine that Jesus produced that no one could use it. You know, there's just loads. And I wonder what our attitude is to God when we pray for things. You know, I, I was just joking and just said, uh, you know, this miracle of God's provision you know, I knew God did it for Billy Graham and Louis Palau and these other things, but I wasn't expecting him to do it for me. And sometimes I think we're a little bit like that. It's not going to happen for me. Uh, I'm not good enough. Uh, almost God doesn't care that much, but that's not right. And I'd just like to challenge you about your expectations in your prayer. Or is it that God will just do it? Or is it that we have got a God who loves to be generous? who loves to lavish things on us. Um, just talking to Granny, is it your, your, your Granny as well. And, and uh, just it's, it's such a delight having grandchildren. And for those who are grandparents, we spoil them. It is one of the privileges, you know. But uh, it's just because you love them so much and you think, oh, that's, that's great. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, the, the children will say, oh, need something, oh, we've got to get a new car seat or something because they're growing up and you just say oh well look you know we can do that we can help and you know our God loves us so maybe we just need to sort of say okay God I'm coming to you and I'm going to raise my expectations because you can never raise them beyond what God can do uh, in any case and uh, they had as much as they wanted uh, when they'd all had enough to eat he said to his disciple gather the pieces that are left over just interestingly, he says, let nothing be wasted. 
Um, a number of times, especially in John's Gospel, Jesus talks about uh, handling wisely the things that God has entrusted to him, that uh, he's careful with them. Just that little phrase that comes from the lips of Jesus, let nothing be wasted. Uh, when I read that, I, I remembered uh, my nan darning socks. All right, now I'm looking at some of you don't even know what the word darning means, I dare say. Yeah, there are one or two of you. Uh, do. But, you know, when the socks would wear out, they'd sort of sew into it uh, or knit into it and weave into it so that the socks would last. Nowadays, your socks wear out, you throw them out and you buy yourself a new And I don't want to go back to the days of darning. But actually, we are stewards of this earth as Christians, okay? There, there is, you know, I'm, I'm not getting on the sort of green platform, but we have got certain responsibilities. And especially in, the, in these times when it's such a tragedy that people are starving and yet so much food goes to waste. And sometimes again, it's just a challenge to us. What about me? Am I wasteful? Uh, can I handle things a bit better? In the end, they gather up um, 12 baskets of uh, the, the pieces that were left over. <laughs> When, when I see the pictures, very often uh, you, you see the disciples with a sort of hamper full of basket, like a big hamper. I don't think it was actually like that. In fact, most Jewish men, if not all Jewish men, would actually carry a basket with them. Now, you might think that sounds a bit weird. Um, the Romans certainly did because they used to make fun of the Jews. It, it was a, a sort of small basket. It would have a, a small, narrow opening and then... Uh, spread out a bit. Uh, if those who used to do chemistry, like a sort of uh, one of those glass flasks there. But they would keep food in it because, of course, for the Jews, they had strict dietary laws. So you had to make sure that the food didn't get contaminated with other food that was unclean. And so, you know, it just seems to me that these 12 baskets seem to be for the 12 disciples, that they get their share as well. That God doesn't just want to work through us, but God wants to work for us. God doesn't just want us to be a source of blessing, though he certainly does uh, that, but he wants to bless us as well. In fact, the Jews, they had um, this custom called the payah, which where after you went to a banquet, you would leave something, a bit like tips that we leave for waitresses and waiters uh, nowadays. And God does want to bless us as well. Just getting towards the end of the story. It says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. I might have mentioned this in one of the talks I've done before, but m most of the prophecies about Jesus you find in the books that we call the prophets, you know, Isaiah 53 and, uh, you know, certainly some uh, other books. But in the Pentateuch, in one of the first five books of the Bible, there's a prophet that Moses, uh, a prophecy that Moses gives. And he said, God is going to raise among you, from one of your brethren, someone who's going to be like me. And they were expecting for a prophet to come. And of course, what is happening is that Jesus is providing them with bread. And they're thinking, well, we remember this. This is what Moses did in the wilderness. Although if you read the rest of the chapter, Jesus said it wasn't Moses who provided the manna from heaven. It was God who provided the manna from heaven. Remember I said about the um, Passover as well during the time of Moses, that uh, Moses leads them out. They, they triumph over their enemies. They were the Egyptians there. And so not only do they think he's a prophet, but uh, it says, 
uh, here Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. You see, these people, all they wanted from Jesus was to see signs and to see Jesus deliver what they wanted. And for them, it was a political freedom, uh, a territorial freedom, a military freedom. But of course, we know that the victory that Jesus has won is much, much greater than that, much, much bigger. It is a spiritual victory that is going to last for all times. And I haven't got time to do it now, but when you read later on in this chapter, Jesus begins to talk about being the bread of life. And then he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, what he is talking about, obviously, is identifying with him on the cross and what he has done. And Jesus is refusing to become this sort of person who is just there for other people's aims, for other people's goals, for other people to mold him into their expectations. of I'm looking for a savior who's just going to look after me. I'm looking for a savior who's going to bring me freedom. I'm looking for a savior who's going to bring me control. And instead, Jesus says, no, you've got to come on my terms. Actually, you will, reach, you, you will meet someone who will give you freedom, but it's not necessarily the freedom that you want. You will meet someone who has got this incredible love, this incredible compassion, because he is willing to lay down his life. But you see, in this chapter, the very sad thing, it says from that time, many of his disciples left him because they were just looking for a different sort of savior, someone just to answer their prayers to fulfill their agenda. We're going to come and we're going to take the bread and the wine now. And I just want to encourage you just to come and say, Jesus, help me to identify with you. Help me to see your compassion. Help me to be obedient and submissive. If you like to sit at your feet, help me to realize what I have got and help me as well to surrender that. You see, when we take this bread and wine, uh, I mean, it's in a little, uh, little packet now, isn't it? And we, we just take a morsel of bread. We just take a drop of wine. And yet, actually, it symbolizes something that is so much bigger. And really, to me, that is the whole lesson of today, that with Jesus, things can be so different when we really surrender the little that we have. And uh, this little that speaks of so much of his love, of his grace. May it help us to come, to give thanks. Uh, you know, that's the, the, the word The word John uses here is Eucharisteo. Uh, some of you might know the word Eucharist. It means to give thanks to God for all that he has done, but do it in this relationship of here I, here I am. I haven't got much to offer, but I will give it all to you. So John, thank you. Can you please lead us in communion? Thank you. Yeah, I'm not going to add too much to what Peter has said already, so let's just um, take a moment and give thanks, um, have a moment with the Lord and, and surrender our hearts to him afresh and recognize and remember what, what Jesus did for us on the cross and giving of his body and shedding of his blood. Uh, Luke 22:19, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you. The, sorry, this cup that is poured out for you is the blood, is the new covenant in my blood. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your death on the cross and, and your resurrection, Father. Help us to surrender our lives to you. Help us to believe in those moments of where it would be so, so easy to have unbelief. Help us to recognize who you are and what you've done for us. Help us not to for forget you are a God that likes to pour out your blessings on us lavishly you are not you're not um a harsh god you are not a a god who who wants to withhold things from us father but you give father so generously as you did on that cross and we give you praise and thanks i know time's gone but if the worship uh, team would like to come up i don't, don't want to just rush over this moment i want to um have a, a time of reflection in worship um uh, as as we as we close